our topic. You see on the screen, the power to get wealth. Does God want me to be a millionaire? Hmm, wow. We're going to talk about that. But before we get any further, I want to just, again, remind us where we've come from, where we're headed. So last week, we discussed the topic there, neither poverty nor riches. I'm going to share in just a moment how you can get a copy of the recording from last week and, and also the, um, the slides, uh, how to get that. I'll give you a link in just a moment. Tonight, we're going to be talking about the power to get wealth. And next week, we're talking about debt, slaves to the lender, practical tips on dealing with debt. And I'll share a story of how we, my wife and I paid off our house in two years. And that tends to get people's attention. But also, how to buy a car without a car loan. I'll be giving you some practical tips and what I think about credit cards and things of that nature. So you won't want to miss that. And then we're going to take a break on July 4. Everyone's going to go light some money on fire and let them make beautiful colors in the sky. And then, after that, three more weeks, we'll be talking about counting the costs, saving, spending, and budgeting. And then the, that's all about budgeting and spending plan and all of that. The fifth session, we'll be talking about investing. And investing is always the number one question I get whenever I do these seminars. So uh, just so you're aware, I will not be telling you what to invest in. That would not be ethical. But I'll be sharing principles so that you can make your own informed decisions on how to select your investments. And then number six, our last session we'll be talking about financial planning, which really is going to be a comprehensive bird's eye view of how do you manage every aspect of your finances, as well as dealing with finances through uh, the seasons of life. So that's our preview of where we're going. So this is the link, all right? Get your cell phones ready, ladies and gentlemen. This is how you can access the recordings from previous last week, as well as this will be the link going forward every week. As soon as I'm able to edit and get it posted, you will see the new presentations there. And the slides that I am using will all be made available. And there's a nice big QR code, so you, should, you, you don't really need to take a picture. You should be able to just use a QR code. All right, so I'll give everyone just a few more moments to take the photo here and to scan their QR code. Uh, or you can just look on audioverse.org and look up my name and it will be the most recent presentations there. All right. We're going to review a couple of verses that we talked about last week regarding wealth. That's really the purpose or the focus of our study this evening. It's all about wealth. We discussed how wealth is kind of a paradoxical thing last week where there's a lot of warnings against excessive wealth. There's warnings about the rich people at the end of time. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It all sounds so serious. But then we also read these statements from the Bible as well. 3 John 2 says, Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health even as thy soul prospereth. And then Deuteronomy 8, verse 18, But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee the power to get wealth. And you notice that's where we get the title of our presentation tonight. It is directly quoted from Scripture. It is God that giveth us power to get wealth. Well, if wealth is a bad thing, why would he give us the power to do it? And it seems like he's encouraging it. In fact, the next passage right here, Deuteronomy 28, 11, 
28, verse 11 and 12. And the Lord will make you abound in prosperity in the fruit of your womb, in the fruit of your livestock, in the fruit of your ground within the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give to you. The Lord will open to you his good treasury, the heavens, to give rain to your lands in a season and to bless all the work of your hands. And you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. So wealth is still promoted in Scripture. And I know, let me just review, last week we discussed that the threshold, the biblical definition of wealth and prosperity is to have enough. Okay, so it's not to have excessive wealth, to have more than we need, but it's to have what's needed to meet our needs. And you know, wealth is one of those things. It's it's simultaneously something we all aspire to, but then it's also something that we kind of wag our tongues at. You know what I'm talking about? All the Wall Street fat cats, the, the 1%, they need to pay their fair share in taxes, right? We hear about this in the news all the time. But then when we think about our children and going to college, it's like, well, why do you want to take that major? You're not going to be able to make a living. I'm an Asian, right? And so all of people, you know, in the Asian culture, the parents are like, you want to be a doctor, right? So you can make more money. And then when we build big sanctuaries, like what, we're here, like what we're sitting in here, like we're very happy when somebody writes that big check to pay off the building. So wealth is simultaneously this bad, evil, sinful type of thing. But then secretly over here, we're like, man, I kind of wish we had some. And when we're trying to raise money for God's work, we really wish we had some wealthy people in our congregation. So it's this, this issue, right? So the Bible gives us this paradox, but tonight I want to spend some time really thinking about wealth in a practical way. What is it? How is it measured? How do people get it? Is it such a horrible thing? And how ought we to relate with it? All right, so let's begin. Practical question. So how much do I need to earn to be wealthy? Have you ever wondered this? Seems like a question that I started wondering when I was a little kid. Well, let's keep thinking together because a little clue, this is a bit of a trick question. All right, so let's keep, let's keep looking. So how, this, how is wealth measured? Okay, this is how we have to measure wealth. This is, there is actually a formula. There is a formula to measure wealth. Your assets minus your liabilities equals your net worth. If anybody has taken basic accounting, you will know this. This is what is revealed in a balance sheet, if you have uh, familiarity with financial statements. So what are assets and what are liabilities? Well, simply put, assets are things that we own. Liabilities are things that we owe. Assets are things like cash in the bank. Our investments, like in our 401k at work or IRA, our stocks and bonds, properties like rental properties and our personal residence, vehicles, those are assets. Liabilities are things that we owe or they're debts, generally speaking. So student loans, credit cards, car notes, mortgages, business loans, etc., etc. So how do we measure wealth? You take everything that you own, the value of those things, you add them up, And then you take the value of all the things you owe, you subtract liabilities from assets, and what you have left is your net worth. So let's take a look at an example. All right, we have Teacher Trey and Dr. Don. 
Trey earns $50,000 a year, which as of now is below the US median household income. He has a house that is worth $200,000. He drives an old Toyota Camry. Dr. Don earns $200,000 a year, so four times more. His house is also four times more, $800,000, and he drives a fairly recent BMW. Who is wealthier? Who, let me ask you a question. Who, okay, let me reframe the question. Who looks wealthier? The doctor looks wealthier. But the correct answer to the question at the top, who's healthier, wealthier, is we don't have enough information. Because remember the formula for determining wealth? Assets and liabilities. Do we know anything about all, well, we know some about their assets. We don't know anything about the liabilities. But we know something about their income. But notice, income doesn't factor into the equation to measure wealth. We're going to come back to that. So let's take a look at Teacher Trey's balance sheet, his assets and his liabilities. He has $12,500 in cash. His home is worth $200,000. His car is worth $6,000. And he has $340,000 saved up for retirement. So his total assets are $558,000 or $5,500. $558,500. So over half a million dollars. Does he have any debts? He doesn't owe anything. And so his assets equal his net worth. So his net worth is a little over a half a million dollars. Notice his income doesn't really factor in to this calculation. So let's take a look at Dr. Don. He has $5,000 in cash. His home is worth $800,000. His car is worth $80,000. He hasn't saved up anything for retirement, so his assets are $885,000. Okay, that doesn't look so bad. But how much does he owe? His liabilities. He has a $640,000 mortgage on his house. He owes $72,000 on his car. He has a quarter of a million dollars in student loans. And before you think, <gasps> that's pretty normal for a doctor, actually. Uh, yeah, and, and for the dentist in the room, this is very low, all right? Credit cards, he has $20,000 in credit card debt. So his liabilities are $982,000, almost a million dollars in liabilities. And so if you subtract the two, you notice that his net worth is actually negative $97,000. So he earns a lot, but his net worth is negative. So let's go back to our question. Who is wealthier? Objectively speaking, the teacher has a higher net worth than the doctor. So the question, the next question, and this is, it requires honesty. Who would you rather be? Who would you rather be? I mean, look, look at that house. That garden shed looks, it's paid off. That Honda, Cor or that Toyota Camry, like it, it might only have three wheels. I don't know. <laughs> Teacher Trey does not have the trappings of the good life. The doctor does. But what's underneath is that the doctor doesn't actually own any of the trappings that we see. It's all owned by the bank. And so we have to ask ourselves this question, and we have to be very honest with ourselves. Are we content with having less outwardly, but actually having it owned by us, having a positive net worth? 
Or do we want to just have the appearance of living the American dream while having everything charged up as a liability? Because I can tell you, most Americans would choose to be Dr. Don. That is simply the way America operates now. And so, what am I saying? Income does not equal wealth, and spending does not equal wealth. This is a common misconception. We assume somebody who earns a lot of money must automatically be rich. That's not true. That's actually very rarely true. And so, uh, we see here, this is uh, from Bloomberg magazine, households with income of seventy-five dollars to $100,000 in the year 2012, so this is a little bit old, but 10 years ago, 55% saved nothing, 16% spent more than they earned and went further into debt, and 20% would go into months of debt if there was a $400 emergency. This is considered the upper middle class, and they are still struggling to save money. Spending also does not equal wealth because one of the biggest categories of spenders are teens. We're told whether an average income or upper income household, teens still spend about 40% of their budget on fashion. Teens will make two trips to a restaurant for every one trip they make to a gas station. Where did the teens get their money? I don't know that, I don't know many teens that are earning a whole lot of money, but they sure spend like they do. There's a term, a very scientific term, it's called big hat, no cattle. That's what that looks like. They've got all the stuff, but it's all fake. Wealth is determined not by how much you earn or spend, but by how much you keep. Very important point. So a person with a big paycheck can have a low net worth, while a person with a small paycheck can still have a high net worth. All right? This is one of the, 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 the amazing things that for those of us who don't have large incomes can still give us some measure of hope. Let's take a look at an example, okay? Because this is another myth. A lot of times people assume, oh, being a millionaire means I have to earn a million dollars a year. No, that's not how millionaires are measured. Millionaires are measured by net worth, by your balance sheet. For example, Warren Buffett, one of the richest men in the world, he has a salary of, and I say this in quotes, only $100,000 a year. And, I mean, he earns less than Dr. Don we just talked about. But he has a net worth of over $100 billion. He's a billionaire not because he earns a billion dollars a year. I mean, his company does, but himself personally, his salary is only $100,000. So you see, Millionaire status is determined by your net worth, not by your salary, and there can be a significant difference between how much you earn and how much your net worth is. Because let me give you the other example. Think about all the professional athletes. Many of them earn north of $10 million a year. What about their net worth? We don't have to guess. Sports Illustrated actually tells us how and why athletes go broke. By the time they've been retired for two years, 78% of former NFL players have gone bankrupt or are under financial distress because of joblessness or divorce. Within five years of retirement, an estimated 60% of former NBA players are broke. High income does not equate wealth, even for the super high income people like the superstars, uh, superstar athletes. So there's a book that was published in the 90s by two PhDs who researched millionaires across America. 
And they wrote a book publishing their findings, and it is called The Millionaire Next Door. How many of you have heard of this book? This book has sold millions of copies. <laughs> Who would have guessed? The Millionaire Next Door. So these researchers looked at millionaires. Now, I have to say, because of inflation, a million dollars in the 90s is not the same as a million dollars today. So let me just give you the, 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 the numbers now. So a million dollars in 1996, when the book was first published, equals 1.8 million in 2022. Okay, so that's how much inflation has uh, devalued our money. And to go in reverse, a million dollars today would have been worth about $536,000 in 1996. So they're talking about millionaire status back then, which today would be more like almost 2 million. Okay, so just keep that in mind. So here are some top characteristics of the millionaire next door. And see if you can determine why they named the book what they called it, okay? The top characteristics of millionaires in America, they live well below their means and are savers no matter their income. Most are first generation rich and didn't inherit wealth. Mostly college educated and they value education highly. They are typically in their late 50s, married to their first spouse with several kids. Their kids are financially self-sufficient, and many don't even know that their parents are wealthy. Often, they are business owners with a strong work ethic. They are frugal with their finances. They budget and control their expenses. Their home mortgage usually is less than two times their annual income. They bargain shop for affordable used vehicles. They drive used cars. We're going to come back to this thought in a moment. Uh, they don't spend money on luxuries, but they invest in appreciating assets instead, and they look like everyday people. The vast majority of millionaires in America you are people you are more likely to run into at the Samaritan Center than in Beverly Hills. Millionaires don't look like what the TV tells us they look like. They are literally next door. In fact, there may be millionaires here among us tonight. I'm not one of them, but <laughs> there may be. Because they're going to look like everyday, normal people. And in my work as a financial planner, I, I meet millionaires once in a while. And you know what? Most of the people that I've worked with, they don't even know it. They're like, oh, really? I never knew. And this is a couple, a couple examples of how these people become accidental millionaires. And generally it's true, they're in their you know, late 50s, maybe early 60s, nearing retirement. Generally they're in that age bracket. They worked at a job consistently for a long period of time. They've saved into their 401k consistently over time. They might have a couple hundred dollars, uh, a couple hundred thousand dollars in there. And then they bought a house maybe 20 years ago. And the value of the home has appreciated from 150000 now maybe $600,000 home. And guess what? You put two and two together, and lo and behold, they're over a million dollars. And when I run their numbers and I pull up their balance sheet and I, I say, congratulations, you're over a million dollars, you're a millionaire, they're like, I don't feel like it. <laughs> and I said, yeah, you keep clipping your coupons. That's how you got here. And another example... Frequently, they are business owners, just like what we read about. Small business owners who just work hard, taking care of their, their customers and their clients, and their business all of a sudden is worth maybe you know, 
five, six, seven hundred thousand dollars, and then they also own a home, they might not have even saved for retirement, and lo and behold, they've got 1.2, 1.3 million dollars in the, you know, in net worth, and they don't know it because they're just working, and they're saving, and they're being considerate and budgeting, and so it is, what am I trying to say here? I'm trying to say several things. A million dollars is still a lot of money, but it's also not that much money. Anyone who's been in a building project knows a million dollars doesn't go very far when it comes to building, let's say, a church or something to that effect. But when we're looking at the number, it's not so much the number that's important, it's the characteristics, the traits that lead people to have those numbers. Okay? That's the point I'm trying to make. So, the doctor, Dr. Stanley and Danko, they actually have a net worth formula. A lot of formulas tonight. And this is their net worth formula. Okay? How do you determine what your net worth should be? Multiply your age times your realized pre-tax annual household income from all sources except inheritances. Divide by 10. This, less any inherited wealth, is what your net worth should be. Now, that's a mouthful, so I just simplified it for you, and we're going to look at Teacher Trey and Dr. Don, again, as an example. So there's the formula at the top. Age times annual income divided by 10 minus any inheritance you have equals your net worth or what your net worth should be, all right? I'm, I'm saying that both Trey and Don are the same age. They're 50 years old. And Trey earns $50,000 a year. He hasn't gotten any inheritance. So his expected net worth should be $250,000, but his actual net worth is $558,000. So he is double what, according to the millionaire next door, says his net worth should be. Whereas Dawn, on the other hand, earns $200,000 a year, also no inheritance. He should be a millionaire, but his net worth is actually negative. So the delta there, the difference, is very large. Okay, so that's just an example, and if you want to run the numbers yourself, you can go home and crunch those numbers. What do you mean expected net worth? So this is the net worth. So the question is, what is expected net worth? So this is based on the research by Dr. Stanley and Danko based on the general uh, average of millionaire status. How, what should a person's net worth be to be tracking to have a healthy net worth, whether you hit a million dollars or not? Okay, so healthy net worth, expect, expected net worth to be in a healthy financial position might be a better way of putting it. Thanks for that question. Yes, in the back. You change this for inflation over time. This is adjusted for inflation because it's based on your annual income. And your annual income is based on your current earnings. Inflation sh- does not play a part. It should not be affected because your income is inflation adjusted. Okay, that's a good question. It is not an absolute number, it is a relative number, all right? So back to the cars, all right? So millionaires drive used cars. And according to Dave Ramsey, here are the top car brands driven by millionaires. Number one, Toyota. Number two, Honda. Number three, Ford. Number four, Lexus. Number five, Subaru. Number six, BMW. Number seven, Acura. Number eight, Hyundai. Number nine, Lincoln. Number 10, Buick. And what, does he, what else does he say? Most millionaires don't drive flashy cars. 69% of millionaires did not average $100,000 or more in household income per year. 
And get this, one-third of millionaires never had a six-figure household income in their entire careers. When people don't waste money trying to look wealthy, they have money to actually become wealthy. So, I guess tonight, some of us are going to get to climb into our millionaire vehicles. <laughs> we can have the satisfaction that we drive like millionaires, amen? <laughs> in my old Honda Odyssey, yes. So here are some questions to ask. Are we spending everything we make each month, or are we saving and investing? Are we buying consumables that decrease in value, or are we buying assets that increase in value? Right? These are millionaire next door type questions. Do we have debt that cancels out our assets on our balance sheet? Do we owe more than we own? Okay? These are questions that help us have the proper relation to what healthy net worth and wealth ought to be. So at this point, I feel it important to address, I think, my, what might be an elephant in the room. And that is, well, what about all the rich people I hear about on TV? All the rich people, the 1% we hear about, all of the you know, billionaires and the people that you know, need to pay more in taxes and all this stuff that people are telling us. Well, I want to simplify this and, and say, yes, indeed, there are other paths to the millionaire status. And I'm, this is descriptive now, okay? I'm describing the categories of people just so we understand the landscape. There are four categories of, or four paths to become a millionaire. The first is the saver investor. And this is lowest risk and the easiest achieve. And this is really the millionaire next door idea that we're talking about. The earning potential, meaning the final net worth potential, is on the low end of the millionaire status. It's like from one million maybe to $10 million net worth. And the methodology of getting there is even for those with low to moderate income, they just have a long-term investing strategy, conservative investments, and some of them are small business owners. And the examples are the millionaire next door people that I talked about. And there's another book by Dave Ramsey called Baby Step Millionaires, which basically confirm a lot of that research. Over 90% of the millionaires in this country fall in this category, saver investor. That's the category that I'm referring to. It is attainable by most people. But then there's the corporate climber. These are the business executives. The, this is moderately risky, moderately difficult. They have a moderate potential for millionaire status, meaning they're over 10 million, like double digits. And then um, how do they get there? What's the method? Well, they earn super high incomes. They have benefits, they have bonuses, they have stock options and things of that nature. Employee compensation plans, corporate compensation plans. And this is the corporate climbers. These are like the CEOs and the you know, C-suite executives and big corporations and so forth. Okay, the next category or the next path to millionaire are what's called the virtuoso specialist. These are people who are like the athletes and the musicians and the actors and authors and experts. People with a very specialized skill set or a unique talent that they can monetize. It's high risk, high difficulty. And when I say high risk... When I say low risk, moderate risk, high risk, and then extreme risk, what does that mean? The risk of losing your capital, losing your money, okay? If you're a safe investor, the, the risk of losing your money investing in a 401k at work is quite low. But if you are a virtuoso specialist and you're an athlete, 
like what we talked about, the NFL players, the risk of losing all the wealth is actually quite high. But the earning potential is quite high as well. We're talking three digits, right? Over $100 million. And this, how do they get it? Through expensive contracts, like sports contracts and things like that, patents, royalties, sales, merchandise, endorsements, concert tickets, things of that nature, all right? Now the last category, this is the big one. This is the Elon Musk category. The dreamer entrepreneur, the tech entrepreneur, the company founders, these are the people that make it to the headline news on CNN and all of that. It is extremely risky. The chances of failure is like 95% to be a tech startup that is successful, to be a unicorn, which is described as a startup that IPOs at over a billion dollars is like a fraction of 1%. But there's extreme potential because th th these are how all the new billionaires are minted. The Mark Zuckerbergs of the world, the Jeff Bezos and the Elon Musk, those people, they start businesses, startups, and then they have initial public offerings, or they get acquired by a larger company, and they make billions of dollars. So these are four paths to over a million dollars in net worth, but the saver investor category is the category that we're focused on, because that's where over 90% of millionaires in the United States reside, okay? And so income. I've been kind of talking about net worth and how income, even if we have low income and all of that, it doesn't matter. Well, actually, income does matter somewhat, and I need to clarify this. And why is that? Because income is what we have as our tool to convert into net worth. So the income that we receive, whether through investments or active salary or wages, it can be put into three places. The income can be put towards assets, buying properties or investments, things that can go up in value, or it can go into liabilities, which pays down our debts, which actually still increases our net worth, or it can go to expenses, which in this case is going into a trash can. It's kind of an exaggeration. We do need to, you know, we have expenses that we have to have to live, like we have to buy groceries and so forth to eat. But the point is, it doesn't go towards the net worth. So the idea of optimizing, if that's our goal, our net worth is, the, as much of our income should go towards the two categories that increases the net worth, towards assets that increase in value or towards liabilities that we are paying down our debts and to minimize what we put in our expenses. So there's a lot of news, a lot of chatter about a recession. Have you heard, have you heard that we might be going into a recession? We might be in a recession. That's what people say. There are two groups in, the, in a recession, and I feel this is the most appropriate place to bring it up. We're talking about wealth, and usually when people talk about recession, they're like, oh, our wealth is going down the toilet. There are two categories of people in a recession, those who thrive and those who struggle. Rarely do people just kind of stay the same in a recession. And what are the category, or what's the characteristics of, of these two classes of people? Those who thrive are those who maintain their income sources. Whereas those who struggle are those who lose their income sources. The biggest risk to people in a recession is losing their job. Those who thrive, they have a cash cushion. So even if they do lose their job, they have some margin where they can absorb uh, the loss. This is what we talk about when we say an emergency fund. A reminder, last week, three to six months of your living expenses in an emergency fund is the target. Those who struggle in a recession have no margin of safety. 
So when things go wrong, they don't have an income anymore, they are immediately put into crisis mode. Those who thrive have little debt, whereas those who struggle have too much debt. And those who thrive, they build wealth. And this is the little, dirty little secret about recessions. The majority of wealth that is gained by people occur during financial downturns or recessions. It's just who, who's in position to capitalize on it. Well, the people who are in position are those that are in a financially sound situation, whereas those who struggle often, worst case scenario, they may end up finding themselves in bankruptcy. So a few tips, a few tips to think about to weather a recession. All right, number one, secure or increase your income. And if we're not in a recession now, and there's a risk of it, better to be prepared early rather than too late. And number two, one way to do that is to be a linchpin employee. I, do, I am an employer, so I do have employees, and I can tell you there are certain employees that I am less willing to let go than others. It's not that they are less human or less valuable, that's not my point. But for my operations, there are certain people that are more critical to the operation. They're called linchpins. Look at the picture. There's a pin in that wheel. What happens to the cart if that pin falls out? You're bumping down the road, the wheel falls off. Everything comes tumbling out of the wagon. The whole thing gets turned upside down. So if you are concerned about your job, you want to turn yourself into a linchpin to your employer, where they're going to have to think twice, three times, four times before they let you go. They're going to say, if I let that person go, the whole operation is going to fall apart here. And I can't afford that. So make yourself a linchpin employee. Number three, you want to upgrade your marketable skills. This might be just self-taught. This might be being a little bit, taking more initiative at work to make yourself useful in other areas. Number four, reduce your debt burden. We're going to talk a lot more about that next week. How do we do that? Uh, number five, develop a cash cushion. I've mentioned this over and over and over and over again because in a recession, if you have cash, you're, you have safety. If you are out of cash, you're in trouble. And number six, you want to look for opportunities for deals. You can't take advantage of a deal if you don't have the money. You see, the reason why the majority of wealth is made during economic downturns is that that's when the assets are on sale. Everybody loves to get a deal, don't they? Except when it's in a recession. I'll use an example. Do you want to buy a house when the housing market is at the peak? When the housing market is in a low spot? If you're a buyer, you want to buy when it's low. If you're a seller, you want to sell when it's high. So if you're looking to buy a home, a recession could potentially, I'm not saying guarantee, it could potentially be a good time to get a deal on a house. Because not only are we looking at uh, the assets going down in value, you might be up finding people who don't have the safety margin, who need the cash, and they have to sell quick. You understand? So you want to be in a position to take advantage of the deals, not to take advantage of people's misfortune. You understand what I'm saying? But to take advantage of opportunities that arise. But that only happens if you are put, putting yourself in a position of having uh, some free cash. All right, so... The Bible tells us a slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Proverbs 10.4.
And Proverbs 12, 11 says, Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lack sense. So we want to be diligent and intentional. And so this brings up an important question. What are we saving for? What's the purpose of this wealth that we're talking about? Last week, we talked about just having enough. Well, what does that mean? Money is a tool with only three functions. Let's simplify this, okay? What is money actually good for? There are only three things. We can use it to spend on current needs or wants. We can save it for future needs or wants. Or we could give it away. That's it. Those are the three functions of money. So this wealth that we're, trying, we're talking about building, increasing our net worth, having some assets to our name, what is it for? Well, for future needs. Right? We need to spend to live, but we're talking about minimizing our spending and all of that and being content with what we have. We talked about that last week. But what about future needs? There are legitimate future needs that we need to have some measure of wealth in order to acquire. Like if we need a car, you're going to need some money to buy a car. And if you're not going to save up for it ahead of time, actually, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. We're going to talk about that next week. You're going to take out a loan. And that goes in the liabilities column, not in the assets column. Well, what about an education for our children or for ourselves, college? What if we want to buy a home? Perhaps the Lord wants us to take our family to buy a country home, to move out in the country. That takes money. That's a form of wealth. What about weddings? I've got two girls, one day. I'm not saving up yet because Jesus will come before then, right? <laughs> Retirement, should time last? Big purchases? So the future needs require preparation and wealth. Once we reach our saving goals, though, the surplus can be given away. So another purpose is that we can help write the big check to help pay off the church building, right? If we have some wealth to do that with. Now, the Bible, there is a story of a rich fool. I'm just going to refer to the story. You can read it later in Luke 12. He had a bumper crop in his farm, and so he built a barn. And it filled up. He built, he built a bigger barn, and he wanted to build a bigger barn. He says, soul, take thy ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. And God rebuked the man. Well, for us, that's not the purpose of wealth. Anything beyond our needs doesn't need to be hoarded up anymore. It can be applied to helping others in need and also uh, for the cause of God. But what else is wealth good for? Wealth is useful for attaining freedom. Freedom. What is financial independence? Freedom from want, uncertainty, and stress. Freedom from creditors. Freedom from having to do work that we detest, that we don't find meaning in. And freedom to serve, and to share, and to give. I believe God's work is going to be in need of resources. And those resources aren't going to grow on trees. They're not going to be rained miraculously down from heaven like manna. It's going to come from the generous giving of God's people who have applied principles of financial management so that they have means to give to advance the work of God. Financial independence has a very close relationship to the work of God and the advancement of the gospel. 
In the New Testament, this I'm going off script a little bit, but in the New Testament, when the early church was formed, the early church was allowed to continue because of the sacrificial generosity of a few wealthy men who had this attitude of, not, this money is not for me. This money is for God's work. And so I want to look again at another idea here about freedom. Okay, We've been talking about Teacher Trey and Dr. Don. So we're going to mix up the numbers a little bit to make this illustration. The question is financial independence. Who is more free financially, Trey or Don? Trey earns $50,000. We already established that. Don earns two hundred. Trey spends $20,000 per year for his living expenses, so he's able to save $30,000 a year or put away $30,000 in savings. And that is 60% okay, of his gross income. Don, on the other hand, in this new example, he spends $170,000 a year, and he saves the same amount, $30,000 a year, which is 15% of his gross income. That doesn't look too bad, right? They're both saving $30,000. That's a lot, $30,000 of savings. He's not spending more than he earns. But the question again, who is more financially free? In one sense, the answer is, yeah, I guess you can kind of say they're both kind of neck and neck. They're not necessarily going in the negative, but there really is an objective answer here. Let me explain. Who is more free? Let me explain it this way. For each year that Trey works, he can take one and a half years off. You understand how the math works? How much does he need to spend to live? $20,000 a year. How much does he save after one year? He saves $30,000. So $30,000 can fund his lifestyle for one and a half years. Whereas Dr. Don, he has to work 5.7 years before he can take one year off. So let me make it very concrete for you. Who is better positioned to be able to survive getting laid off from their job? Trey can go a full one and a half years without working. Whereas Don, he's going to be in trouble in short order. Let me give you a very real example. Not long ago, we went through a global pandemic. My mom happened to be a nurse. She still is, works in a hospital in Loma Linda. And her department was furloughed. They were an outpatient surgery center, and so it was elective. A lot of it was elective, and so they closed her department, sent everyone home with no pay. My mom, fortunately, listened to her son. She had an emergency fund, and for her, it was an extended vacation. She went home, she did lots of cooking, she would bake stuff, she would visit her neighbors, and she would like be helping people where she could. It was like an extended vacation for her. But some of her colleagues, they live paycheck to paycheck. Some of these colleagues literally would call in sick the day of payday so that they could go shopping with the money that they receive on payday. Everything was charged up, their home, student loans, personal loans, living loans, car loans, credit card debt. And for them to be furloughed for, you know, it ended up being a few months, but for at one time and indeterminate period of time, it was an existential crisis for them. 
They were talking about bankruptcy and divorce and mental breakdowns and all of this. Financial freedom. That's the difference when the rubber meets the road. Having the freedom to be able to say, oh, I don't have, I don't, I don't, I can't go to work. Well, okay, I'll go find something else useful to do with my time versus being stressed out of your mind and having an existential crisis. You see, there is a double benefit of living on less. When we live on less, we are able to save a greater percentage of our income immediately. Okay, so we're able to save more immediately. But not only that, our total amount of savings required is permanently decreased in the future because the baseline now is lower. We need less permanently. But of course, everyone always thinks, you know, I always get corrected. Wouldn't it be better if you can earn more and you can save more? Well, the answer, of course, is yes. Right? If, if teacher Trey was able to maintain his frugal lifestyle but had the income of Dr. Don, yeah, he'd be a millionaire in no time, right? So, of course, mathematically, that would be the best. But barring that, if we had to pick, is it better to just earn more money and just inflate our spending as we earn more or to constrain our spending to actually live on less, there is actually an objective answer to that, that living on less is going to be better for us in the long run as far as financial independence goes. P.T. Barnum once said, money is a very excellent servant, but a terrible master. We do need it to live, but we need to be careful not that it doesn't rule over us. Okay? We tell the money what to do, and the money doesn't get to tell us what to do. I want to tell you a story about Gladys Holm. Gladys Holm was a secretary her whole life. She never married, and she never earned more than $15,000 per year. She, her income was below the national median income. And she was known as the teddy bear lady because she would frequently visit the Children's Memorial Hospital in Chicago, and she would visit the children and she would bring teddy bears to give to the sick children. Thus, her moniker, the teddy bear lady. In 1996, incidentally, the same year that the Millionaire Next Door book was published, she passed away. She had a small funeral that was attended by only a handful of her friends and guests. She had no heirs, no extended family to speak of, she passed away in a quiet way, and many of her friends just assumed that this would be the end of the story of Miss Gladys Holm. She had a little sum of money where she, in her will, expressed that for the people who came to her, mem- to her memorial service or funeral, please go across the street to her favorite restaurant, and she l- paid for the meal from her estate and said, please remember the happy time. And when people dispersed from that funeral and that small meal afterwards, Gladys Holm could have easily passed, forgotten into the annals of history. But that's not what happened. Not long afterwards, her lawyer, her estate attorney, visited the president 
of the Children's Memorial Hospital in Chicago to inform him that Ms. Gladys Holm had left a gift in her will to the hospital. Would you like to venture a guess how much she left for the hospital? Some of you might have heard this presentation before, so please don't spoil it for the rest. <laughs> Anyone want to venture a guess? How much did she leave? 500,000. Good guess. 100 million. Okay, that's a good guess too, but that's a very big difference. Any other guesses? 8 million. <laughs> Eight million. Let's take a look. She left $18 million to the Children's Memorial Hospital in Chicago. Single woman, never married. Secretary, whole life. Never earned more than a national median income. The president of the hospital, of course, after he picked himself off the floor in shock, he said, how could this be? This is the teddy bear lady. We know who she is. This is impossible. And the attorney said, no, we have confirmed. We have gathered all the assets. Here's the check. As it turns out, Miss Holm visited the children in the ICU often, and she would identify the most needy cases and anonymously send in a check paying for their care out of charity. So in fact, she gave more than 18 million over her life. So how does she do this? Right? That is, nobody had, nobody had any idea that she was so wealthy. How did she do this? The teddy bear lady was a linchpin worker. She worked for the CEO of a corporation in Chicago, and when they interviewed him later, he was still alive at the time, he said she followed him up the ranks. She was an excellent worker. And he said she came to him one day, and said, I want to learn how to invest. So you tell me what you invest in. If you buy 100 shares, I'll buy one share. And I'll just follow your lead. And she learned how to invest from her, her boss. But not only that, she never accepted the narrative that consumption equaled happiness. Now her friends are, were careful to say that she was not stingy. In fact, she was a vivacious lady who had a penchant for wearing red dresses. I think she had a red convertible. She was a vivacious lady, happy and generous, not stingy or, or, or Scrooge-like or ham-fisted. But she didn't waste. She invested regularly throughout her career, according to the testimony of her employer. She had a small income, but she ended up with a large net worth. She found financial independence because she was a millionaire next door, multi-millionaire next door. And perhaps more importantly, she never saved to enrich herself. She saved in order to give. The teddy bear lady gives us a very clear picture of what it means to be a millionaire next door. And so at the beginning of this presentation, we proposed the question, does God want me to be a millionaire? I can't answer that question. The answer, honestly, is I don't know. For some people, depending on the needs, I could easily see that a million, million dollar net worth would be necessary to provide for the basic necessities of a family. It's possible. I've seen them. But for others, a million dollars is not necessary. So that's not really the point of this presentation. It's not the dollar amount. 
It is the traits that the millionaires have that enables them to prosper. The principles that are in harmony with what God has told us in his word, that he desires us to prosper, while also having the spirit of contentment and the spirit of generosity to help other people. So the point of this presentation today is I want us to live like millionaires. Not the millionaires we see on TV. Not the superstars that have gold chains and waste money and blow it all and go broke. Not like that. No, the legitimate millionaires that we don't hear about in the news. Those who are frugal and diligent and industrious and generous. People who have the traits like the teddy bear lady. So it is possible... It is possible for us to prosper while yet not falling over the ditch to being the rich fool. So that brings us to the conclusion of our presentation tonight. We have a little bit more for questions. So just like last week, I'm going to go ahead and have prayer so we can end the, for my recording. And then after that, we'll have some time for questions, which I will ask the gentleman in the back to get the mic ready for. So go ahead, let's bow our heads for prayer as we conclude. Father in heaven, we thank you that There are practical steps for us to prosper as you have intended. Help us, Lord, not to be actuated by the spirit of greed as is so often found in the world, but to understand what our needs truly are. And more importantly, to have the habits of industry and self-discipline and generosity that we might be able to prosper not just for our own sake, but for the sake of others in need and also for the sake of advancing your work. And so, Lord, I pray that you will bless us to this regard. Help us to be mindful of our assets and our liabilities, of how we are spending our income, and for us to be able to glorify you in all that we do, even in this area of our financial management. Please bless us the remainder of this evening, and as we discuss, uh, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.